Destination Eat Drink is up next, but first, listen to this great other show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This week on Minutia Men's Celebrity Interview, we talk with Shark Tank's Mark Cuban. As a dad, uh-huh. when your kids want something, do you make them give you the 90-second pitch? Oh, uh, like... yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'll give them that, and for that reason, I'm out, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Minutia Men, Celebrity Interview. Only on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great Talk Radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. Baguettes, cheese, natural wine, and trying to avoid the crowds. This week, we're in Paris, France. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we explore a different foodie city and tell you the best things to eat and drink, as well as cool things to do there. You know, Paris is on the top of everyone's foodie bucket list because of the amazing food and drink. And we were in Paris a couple years ago around Christmas and enjoyed it so much, I thought this would be a good time to do an episode on the City of Lights. So I got in touch with Jess Timmons, a foodie tour guide at Devour Tours, to talk about visiting Paris. But before we talk to Jess... Don't forget to subscribe to Destination Eat Drink. That way you get every episode delivered directly to your phone, tablet, or computer. Just subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix, including radiomisfits.com. Now, Jess Timmons is originally from Liverpool, so I couldn't help but ask her about the Beatles. So there is some Fab Four talk in this episode. And if you love the Beatles like I do and have ever thought about going to Liverpool, check out episode 10 of the podcast. And for more on France, there's episode six on Lyon, which you may find surprising, but Lyon is even more of a foodie city than Paris. And there's also episode 24 of the podcast that's on Bordeaux, another one of the great wine regions of France. Okay, let's talk Paris with Jess Timmons of Devour Tours. Destination, eat, drink. Jess, I love visiting Europe during Christmas. What are some of the things that we can do if we were coming to visit Paris during Christmas time? Um, well, Christmas for the French is all about champagne and oysters. So (laughs) (laughs) a great way, I think, to spend some time over Christmas is in one of my favorite bars. It's called Macave Fleury. Um, It's owned by... She's one of the Fleury family. So the Fleury family have been making champagne since 1895. And um, she is third generation of the same family. Her brothers are actually in the vines making the champagne. And she has a little uh, wine bar in the second arrondissement in Paris. Um, And it's a really cute little place. Like you kind of feel like you're in someone's living room um, and they have the most amazing biodynamic um, champagne that you, that you can imagine. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, we, were in, uh, we were in Turin for Christmas a couple years ago, and mm-hmm. I think having champagne early 
you know, not early, early, but early in the morning, first thing in the morning on Christmas Day is a very nice way to celebrate. Yeah, you can't go wrong, can you? <laughs> <laughs> so, Jess, you do tours for Devour Tours. Um, I love Devour. I've done the Devour Tour in Madrid. I thought it was fantastic. I've talked to the CEO, Lauren. And tell me about some of the Devour Tours in Paris, what makes them unique? What makes Devour different? Because I think you guys do a little bit different spin on your tours than the other ones that I've been on. So you will know if you've spoken to, to Lauren um, that we have a really big focus on on family run and small businesses. And so we have two tours in Paris. One of them is in the Marais area. Um, and we focus on small businesses, on on real Parisians that are making their own food and drink and serving it. And we take you to meet some characters. It's It can be a little bit tricky in the Marais. The Marais is this neighborhood that kind of in the last 20, 25 years has become um, very affluent. And so you do get a lot of big chains. And we've really tried to search out the little guys and, and take you to the people who are actually behind their own counter. And I mean, at Devour, we just think that these places are the places you're going to get the most authentic experience and they care more about your experience. They, they want to share more with you because they're there and they're present and it's, and it's their own livelihood. What are some of the places in the Marais that you like the best? So I am um, a massive fan of a little, we call it an épicerie. So an épicerie is a place where you can go and get kind of ham and cheese and, and jam and, and wine and a little bit of everything. Um, it's called A la Ville de Rodez. So it's specializing in, in products that come from the Auvergne in the Aveyron region, which are in the south of France towards kind of Montpellier area and they do some amazing cured meats they've got a really nice selection of foie gras um, and it's just this it's this little shop with so much character they've been there actually for 99 years and when you walk in you, you can just feel the the life of the of the shop itself what about the uh, Paris by night tour that's in the 11th what's special about the 11th and what would people expect to have happen on the Paris by night tour? So it's a little bit different. Whereas the day tour is very much like classic food tour, eight stops, lots of information, lots of different things to taste. Um, on the Paris by night, the evening food and wine experience, we, we slow down the pace a little bit. Um, we visit just four establishments. and We've picked this neighborhood, the 11th arrondissement, because... Because there's a lot going on. So it's it's a neighborhood that's changed a lot over the last 10 years. There are young people that have moved in and opened up their own restaurants and wine bars. And that's very much juxtaposed with old Paris, with old kind of untouched uh, Paris that, that people don't normally get to. It's very off the beaten track. So what we do, we have four stops. We have two that are much more modern and contemporary. And then we have two that are real old, traditional, classic Paris. So one of the highlights, I think, is um, a little restaurant called La Ravigotte, uh, named after their most famous sauce, of course. La Ravigotte sauce is a kind of bechamel with with egg and, and capers and cornichon in it. Um, they, that's a real old bistro. It's a real old classic bistro. On Saturday nights, they have music. Sometimes it's ladies with accordions. Sometimes it's mm. old guys with, with, with guitars. Sometimes it's, uh, it just feels like someone random that's wandered in off the street. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's full of old framed photos. There's portraits of the chef in his youth on the on the walls, and it's just it's got a lot of character and and a, and a lot to give. And the food is amazing. You talked about the eleventh, and there's what eighteen or nineteen arrondissement in uh, in Paris. What twenty. Are, twenty. Okay. Yeah. What What are some of the lesser visited neighborhoods in Paris that we might want to know about that we should definitely visit when we come to Paris? So the eleventh is a very interesting neighborhood. There's a lot going on. It's kind of. Um, I'm. Where are you from, Brent? <laughs> <laughs> I'm from all over. Originally, I'm from Chicago. Okay, so it's kind of the up-and-coming area. I don't know the Chicago equivalent. There's there's just so much happening. There's so many young people that have moved in and kind of opened up their own little businesses and things like that, that you can wander around the 11th and get lost and find something great. One thing that lots of people are attracted to, um, which is more of a cultural highlight hotspots open in the last few years, it's called the Atelier des Lumières. Um, and it's uh, art exhibition in an old warehouse. It's also a light show. And so people have started to kind of explore the 11th a little bit because of this place. But there's still so much to do. I would definitely say check out the 11th arrondissement. And also, this is my own personal opinion, right? I I avoid Montmartre and Saint-Germain like the plague. There is... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> There are so many visitors. It's one of these places that people feel like they have to check off, but you you don't really get much of a sense of real Paris. If you want real Paris, go to the 11th, go to the 12th, go to the 9th instead of going to Montmartre, which is just as pretty. You've got this amazing house manian architecture, these very grand big boulevards and lots of little side streets winding off and leading you, leading you to places you've never that will never get talked about in in um, guidebooks. And not because they're not great, just because they're not shiny, shiny Saint-Germain. Jess, you brought up these light shows that have become so popular in Paris. I remember when we were in Avignon, we saw one at the castle that was absolutely spectacular. We saw another one that was in an old uh, quarry, an old salt mine, I believe it was. Um, talk about this one that's in Paris, because I haven't seen it and it sounds really interesting. So the translation of that name, I said the Atelier de Lumière, it means um, kind of the light workshop. And the last exhibition they had on was a Klimt exhibition, and it was kind of took you through the journey that Klimt went on in order to develop his style, but through a series of light shows. So it was quite like art historical, but you have music and light and all these amazing kind of weaving patterns that make it very easy to follow. Um, and at the moment, they've got a really impressive Van Gogh exhibition on, which is the same kind of idea. It's all this, it's recreating their their inspirations and how that's feed it, fed into their how their work was made. So it, it's a really kind of immersive experience. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. I really can't recommend these any higher. I love these uh, light shows uh, with the artist exhibitions. They're really quite stunning. And anyone who I know who has seen them has just been blown away by them. Yeah. And if you do go to that one, um, just down the street, there's an amazing little wine bar, bar called La Buvette. Um, 
that Buvette is run by this one woman show. Her name is Camille and she has an amazing selection of old natural wines. Uh, and it's in an old cheese shop. So it's all tiled. It's very attractive, very aesthetic. And it's just down the street. So <laughs> see, now that's the perfect recommendation, Jess, because we've got the light show. We've got the wine shop. You can't pair them together any more perfectly. Than no, that. everyone needs a glass of wine after a good exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> or before, yeah. or before and after. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> so let's talk some of the specific foods that we'll encounter when we're in Paris. And Americans know about crepes, of course, mm -hmm. but there's different ways to try crepes in Paris. Could you speak to that a little bit? For sure. So crepe, we refer, when we say crepe, we always mean a sweet crepe. However, in Paris, in France, we also eat savory crepes. So you get the sweet crepe that's made with uh, wheat flour and generally topped with, you know, Nutella or um, just sugar and lemon or banana or whatever it might be. And then the savory crepe, we actually call it a galette. So a galette indicates that it's made with buckwheat flour. So it has a much more nutty, much more intense uh, flavor. And that can be garnished Traditionally, it's garnished with ham and cheese, can be garnished with a little bit of smoked salmon or um, salad or egg or and generally there is a lot of butter involved. Um, so I think there are some like kind of highlight standout places to get crepes and galettes in Paris. One of them is... Um, a little guy who is in the Marché des Enfants Rouges. So his name is Alain, and his place is called Chez Alain. Very easy to remember. Chez Alain. That's his right. Um, and he does the. He makes it all with organic produce. Um, there is no wanting of butter, um, and and it's just a really good quality and really enormous galette that he makes. Um, and then you also have a. Um, a restaurant, a, a crêperie called Brege. And Brege is um, the, the Brittany word for Brittany. So if you're from Brittany and you want to refer to Brittany, you call it Brege. Um, and so that is in a few different locations. And they also have amazing quality produce. And you can get kind of a crepe for your entree, a crepe for your appetizer, a crepe for your dessert. You can get, you know, whichever... You can eat flat things the whole day, the whole day long. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That sounds great. As, as long as we're talking about carbs, uh, let's talk about croissants. Uh -huh. Even fast food restaurants in the U.S. have croissants now. What are some of the other pastries and how can we how can we sample croissants in Paris? And what are some of the other pastries? Because whenever I think of Paris, I always think of like looking at these museum quality cases just filled with these beautiful pastries. And I wonder, you know, which one is which and which one should I try? It, it seems impossible to choose. Um, well, it is quite difficult, I admit. Um, <laughs> the croissant has, an, uh, in my eyes, superior older sister. It's the pain au chocolat, which so is the croissant with the chocolate in it, which, you know, I always yes. get as, as opposed to the croissant, I think. In French, we have a, we have a distinction. So the croissant and the pain au chocolat, these are viennoiserie. And then the tarte au citron, so the lemon meringue tart and the eclair, these are pâtisserie. So 
I don't think we have this distinction in English, actually. No, I don't think so. No. But in French, there are more distinctions for more different types of food than you can imagine. So, um, As there should be. Yes, definitely. So when we're talking croissant, etc., that for me is a very different category for when we're talking éclair. So when we're talking about the éclair kind of section, which I think we are. Yes. Yeah. Um, I would always go for if it's on offer, something called the Paris-Brest. Paris-Brest is um, it's a race, actually, that takes place once a year. It's a bike race. And they've honored this bike race with making a circular wheel-shaped gâteau, which has uh, two layers of choux pastry held together with a kind of hazelnut cream and is garnished with a ton of hazelnuts on top. That's always a winner, friend, I'll be honest. Um, then you also have one of my absolute favorites is called the Prix d'Amour meaning the well of love. And so that is basically a creme brulee encased in shortcrust pastry. Oh, my. Yeah, it's a good one. It's an impressive one. That one, if you're going to get it, you have to go to Storer, which is the oldest pastry shop in Paris. Um, that's spelled S-T-O-H-R-E-R. And he is the inventor of this little cake. So that, that pastry shop's been there since the 1730s. And that's where you're going to get the best one. You know, one of my favorite things to do in Paris is to grab a fresh baguette, a hunk of cheese, some fruit, and a little bit of wine, and just have a picnic in the afternoon. What's the key to getting good bread in Paris. So the, we've got a little law in France. When it says boulangerie on the outside of the bakery, it means that they're baking the bread on the premises. So when it doesn't say boulangerie, generally they're baking it somewhere else and just driving it in, um, which means you're not going to get anything still warm from the oven, which is always what you're looking for, isn't it? We're seeing at the moment in kind of um, in Parisian boulangerie, so in Parisian bakeries, more and more um, of miche. So miche is this traditional way of making bread, which is in a big round loaf as opposed to in a baguette. And so when you see these breads, they're generally made in the same way that a sourdough is made, so with um, a natural starter. And that is, I mean, if you see someone that's doing kind of the, the big round breads, it's always a sign that they're a little bit more invested in um, kind of the heritage traditions and in making bread absolute from scratch with no added nutrients. So one thing that I do is I have a little look around the, the boulangerie, of, of course, making sure it says boulangerie on the outside first. And if they've got different types of bread, not just the baguette, then I'll trust them a little bit more. Okay, very good. So look for the sign, first of all. First and yeah. foremost, look for the sign. We're talking Paris with Jess Timmons of Devour Tours. Jess is originally from Liverpool, so I got to ask Jess, what's your favorite Beatles song? Oh, I can only pick one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can pick as many as you... We could talk Beatles all day if you want. I mean, I've done I've done whole podcasts on Liverpool before, so we can talk lots of Beatles if you like. But, uh, you know, tell, tell us your... You know, because you're a person who's from Liverpool... Tell us your affinity for the Beatles. Um, so as a person from Liverpool, you you are born with the Beatles. The Beatles are at every corner of your life and you can't get away from them. <laughs> and at the age of about 18 or 19, I discovered Revolver. Oh, yeah. My favorite. Yeah. it's. I mean, that's the real fan's favorite band. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I couldn't, I don't think I could pick one favorite song. 
Um, but Revolver is definitely my favorite album. All right. Well, full respect for picking Revolver because uh, <laughs> that's right at that's right at the top of my list too. Um, and if you want to, I'll put a link to the podcast about Liverpool in the show notes as well. If you want to revisit Liverpool, but it's it's definitely a place that if you go to the UK. Uh, go to Liverpool. It's worth it. There, There is more than the Beatles just there, but uh, the Beatles tours are definitely worth uh, worth your time. So let's talk. Uh, let's talk restaurants specifically in Paris. Just tell us a couple of your favorite. You've mentioned a few already, which I appreciate. But give us a couple of your other favorites that you have in Paris that people should try. Um, so there's a little bistro um tucked away up near to Montmartre in it's in the 10th arrondissement actually it's called Les Arlo so um what they are very famous for is their saucisse puree which is basically sausage and mash i don't know if that's my brit <laughs> my my heritage coming out um but they do the most amazing sausage and mash but in a very french way so when we say mashed potato in in french puree it's not the same as mashed potato in england it is made with an intense amount of of dairy as well and it's the smoothest silkiest um most beautiful texture Um, and those guys are really worth checking out they're doing more than just saucisse puree um and they've also got totally natural wine list it's tiny you're kind of sitting on top of each other but it's it's this really parisian kind of loud bistro it's really good fun i think uh before you move on jess i think that calling them mashed potatoes in Paris is maybe doing them a disservice because it really is something quite unique and different when you get so-called mashed potatoes in Paris. I know. I'm sorry. And if you think of, <laughs> <laughs> would think of um, Joel de Robruchon, who is one of our most famous, most celebrated French three Michelin star chefs, dedicated his life to perfecting the puree. And I've just called it mashed potato. He'll be turning in his grave. <laughs> So give us another one of your favorite places in Paris to visit. I mean, I have to say Septime. Septime is something that if you can get in is incredibly special. And just the attention to detail, just the kind of attention, the attentive service, um, the attention to seasonal produce and just really making that sing. Like for a long time, the chef, he didn't use anything that came from outside of France. Um, there's this real commitment to what is French, to what is local and, and, and making that taste in ways that you've never had it before. It is a real experience. Um, and if you can't get in there, they have a sister restaurant just next door, which is um, fish and seafood. So that might be where you want to eat your oysters for Christmas. <laughs> and um yeah they they do a really also just very kind of produce forward kind of very attentive to to the seasons and and to great quality. Jess you you mentioned uh biodynamic wines a couple of times as we've been speaking and of course France is known for its wine whether it's Chateauneuf de Pop or Bordeaux or Burgundy or whatever so much great wine but Um, It sounds like biodynamic wines are really becoming a big thing in Paris. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. And we will stop saying biodynamic because actually it's really confusing and everyone has a different idea of what biodynamic is. So we'll just say natural. Um, Natural wine means that there's, there's 
kind of very low intervention. There's no pesticides in the in the vines. It's all kind of small batch done by hand. And there's little intervention with the wine itself, very small, if any, sulfites added, um, and nothing else. So that's what we kind of understand it to be. And it, as you say, it's taken off massively in Paris. So over the last kind of 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, um, we're, we're seeing more and more of it, more places popping up that are only serving natural wine, or even just your kind of corner bistro that will have a natural option. Um, it, it fits into the whole kind of French way of thinking. In France, you know, we have laws around how the cheese is made. You, we, we're very attentive to this idea of terroir, to the idea of knowing where your food comes from, knowing how the climate and the soil has affected the taste of that food. Um, and that is just, you know, that's that's something we talk about a lot when we talk about wine as well. And natural wine is is one of the most kind of, honest expressions of the place and the climate and the grape and the winemaker it just is part of the whole French way of thinking like we want to know where our food comes from we want to know how it's made we want to know that it is um it's honest it's really from the Savoie that that cheese is really from I don't know the Auvergne and it fits into that whole kind of way of thinking which is one of the reasons I think it's it's taken off so much years and years ago we used to talk about simply the terroir, you know, where it was from, what the land was like, what the sunshine was like, things like that. This goes far beyond that. And in the United States, we talk about organic wine, but this goes beyond just organic wine. It's it's more than just having pesticide-free grapes. It's how you treat the vines and how you process the, uh, the grapes into becoming wine, which is very interesting, I think. What would be some of the best places to go to experience wine when we're in Paris, whether it's a wine shop or a wine bar or even a bistro? Depending on where you, how adventurous you're feeling. So um, the places that I've mentioned as well, like Les Arlots, Septime, um, La Buvette, these are all people that are only doing natural wine. If you wanted to go a little bit further and, and, and taste something a little kind of more adventurous, there's a bar called La Chambre Noire. So direct translation is the black room, but it actually means a, a pinhole camera, I think. Um, <laughs> and they have a, a selection which is completely sulfite free. There is nothing added to any of their wines. Every bottle you can get this kind of maximum 12,000 bottles of it. It's really small batch. They're doing something a little bit niche. If you want to get out of your comfort zone and try something very, very natural, I would say go to them. If you are... Um, hesitant but interested um i would maybe go to somewhere like lavant comptoir which is in saint-germain um and they have a, three or four different locations oh, we're allowed we're allowed to go to saint saint germain i make an exception for these guys because okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing about these guys is that they will open any bottle for you so there's maybe a really expensive bottle that you've had your eye on for a while but you're not sure if that's you know really how you want to spend ni 90 euros They'll just open it for you and serve you one glass. So you can have a taste of lots of different things without having to commit to the bottle. And what was the name of this place again, Jess? It's called Avant Comptoir. One thing that uh, that I've seen in the United States very rarely, but occasionally I'll see it, is wines that use naturally occurring yeast instead of commercial yeast in their wine. And uh, 
when me and my girlfriend's brother used to make wine 20 years ago, that's how we would make it. Yeah. Um, is there any is there any examples of naturally occurring yeast wines that we might see in Paris? I know it's a very small niche, but I was just curious about that. No, not a small niche. When we're talking about natural wine, Brent, that this is what we mean. Um, so they're not adding any yeast at all no. to it. It's in. Oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that, everything that we've talked about. That's that's what everyone's doing. It's, it's amazing because I found uh, when sampling this and from making it, you know, the quality can vary dramatically. You know, when you use commercial yeast, you can have a very steady uh, product coming out the other end. When you have naturally occurring yeast, you might have a tremendous batch one time, and then the next time you do the exact same thing, and it might turn out to be, well, it looks like we're cooking with this, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, oh, that's so interesting that you used to make wine. We need to talk more about this. Um, <laughs> just yeah, as a ho- just be, as a hobby, you know, we'd go down to yeah. the area in Providence where the old Italian guys were selling grapes off the back of the truck, and you know, oh. check the uh, check the sugar content, buy the grapes, make the wine, and bottle it up and give it to friends and drink at the holidays mostly. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. Oh, it was a blast. We we had a great time. Yeah. Um, so it's true that you can have it can be a little bit more volatile. You have less control over it. But um, if you've got a good winemaker, then they they can figure that out. More more <laughs> no, skilled than us yeah, <laughs> than us guys who are just uh, kind of flying in the in the dark a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not. You know, I've never tasted your wine, so I wouldn't want to. Wouldn't want to judge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish. I wish there was a, a 99 of the Zinfandel left because that was amazing. But you know, there were some others that eh, uh, might have might have got poured down the drain. Might have not. Um, you know, Jess. I, I hate to bring it up, but there's this stubborn stereotype in the United States that uh, people in Paris, Parisians, are rude and. I've been to I've been to France several times. I've been to Paris. Never once have I felt that anyone's been intentionally rude towards me or my girlfriend or anyone I know. But the stereotype still persists. Can can you talk about this a little bit? Or uh, do English people hold the same stereotype? And and where does this come from? Um, they do. English people do hold the same stereotype. I think the Brits are ruder than the French. Actually, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that in actual fact the the Parisians are just incredibly polite. And if you don't um, kind of act out the right courteous approach to conversation, then they get offended and that can be perceived as, and then they're cold towards you because you've offended them and then that can be perceived as being rude. One thing I would always say when you're traveling in France, your key word is bonjour. Yes. Even if you just, um, you, you say hello to everyone. Say hello. If you're in doubt, say hi. Just give, give them a bonjour. Get your bonjour going. Practice your bonjour. Every, <laughs> if you don't say bonjour to people, I've seen it so many times that, that servers haven't gone to the table. They've let these people just kind of sit there for ages waiting for a coffee until they leave because the guests haven't said bonjour to the server. And the server needs to be recognized as a person. 
before that you, you can enter in any kind of exchange. Do you see what I mean? You yes. have to say bonjour. It's this common courtesy that we don't do in England, um, especially not in London. Um, you go into a shop, you say bonjour. You go into a restaurant, you say bonjour. Even if you're sitting outside getting a coffee, say bonjour. Give it a go. They need to hear it in order to go forward. Even if you're just asking for directions, open with a bonjour. In kind of a sing-songy voice too. Bonjour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I was on tour a couple of days ago and I had forgotten to say bonjour to one oh, of them. Oh, no. I know. And I, I'd seen him earlier in the morning. I hadn't said bonjour. And then I went pa- back with, with guests on tour and he shouted at me for about 10 minutes before he gave us any food. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was it was that serious a faux pas. Yeah, it's, it's serious stuff. Say bonjour, otherwise they hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel uh, really fortunate that we were able to visit Notre Dame about a year before the devastating fire. Oh. Um you know, and went up to the top and heard the bells ring and saw the gargoyle. It was fantastic. Loved it. And I was wondering what the status is uh, a year on now of rebuilding the church because President Marcon had a very ambitious plan for getting this church rebuilt. Uh, how How is that coming? Yeah, he's he's realized what he said. Um, so well, I think it was while it was still on flame, he said, it's uh, only going to take us five years to be back up and running. And in the last week or so, he said kind of, you know, it's actually going to take a little bit longer and they're still having debates about what they're going to do. If they're going to make a, another direct replica of what was there before, if they do that, there has to be some pretty, um, rigorous sourcing of, of ancient wood and also, uh, sourcing of people that know how to work with this wood it's a process that's going to take a really long time i, I hope it gets back up in five years yeah I, yeah I i hope it happens because i mean it will eventually but it's so magnificent to visit this place I, I'm, I'm not a member of the flock myself but i do love going into notre dame when i'm in paris um let's let's talk about some of the other places to visit in paris um everyone feels the need to go to the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower when they're in Paris. Do you have any recommendations for visiting these spots, maybe how to get around a little bit easier because they are unbelievably crowded? So the Eiffel Tower, I always think, is better from a distance. <laughs> if you want, if you fancy a big walk, there is a beautiful park called the Parc de Saint-Cloud. St. Cloud, and you get an amazing view of the Eiffel Tower from there. It's a little bit out of the city on the on the west side, um, but that is so much more beautiful than actually battling with crowds and trying to be underneath the Eiffel Tower. It's also about 50 euros to go up the Eiffel Tower, which I think is a ridiculous price. Um, <laughs> for um, the Louvre, the Louvre, if you feel you must do it, go and see Louis, the, I think it's Louis the Louis the Fourteenth apartments? No, it mustn't be. Yeah, it's Louis the Fourteenth apartments. There, I think Beyonce filmed a video in there. They're very impressive. <laughs> their, their Egyptian collection is also amazing. But the Mona Lisa, you will get kind of shunted in front of it and shunted away again. You'll be able to spend, they will only let you spend about 10 seconds in front of it. And everyone is just standing with their back to the Mona Lisa, taking a selfie with it. And right. it's, it's not a, it's not a life changing experience. Um, I would say skip the Mona Lisa if it's, cause you don't, you get in front of it and you're like, oh, I don't know why I've gone through all of this to see this. 
all I see on social media are these pictures of 10,000 people. I'm exaggerating, of mm. course, standing in front of this painting. It's like, how can you get any idea of what's going on here? And, you know, we just came from Madrid and, you know, uh, saw Guernica. Wow. And, you know, that's a that's a different. Yeah, there's lots of people there, but it's nothing like the Mona Lisa. And it's an experience where you can stand there as long as you want. It's very quiet. It's very serene. And you can really take in, you know, what the painting is trying to tell you. Yeah. What are some of the under the radar attractions that we might go see? Maybe some lesser known museums or attractions that that you would recommend, Jess, where we won't encounter such uh, massive crowds. Um, so I, my favorite museum, I think, is um, the Musée de la Chasse et la Nature. They've got a very strange collection. It's taxidermy, bears and other animals and kind of ivory carved uh, shotguns and things like this. And then they will invite an artist to come and interact with their collection. So it's all these antique what relics of of hunting and then you have an artist who uh i saw an exhibition there a few years ago and it stuck with me it was an artist that had made a moose into a set of bagpipes but the the Brittany version of the bagpipes it was a french artist and then they were um like breathing into the the mouth of the moose to inflate the stomach and then punching the stomach to get the sound out which when it's next to all of these kind of crazy old antique taxidermy Animals was just a very interesting experience. Bizarre. It's, yeah, bizarre, but but very, very good. <laughs> 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 and then also, yeah, the Atelier de Lumière, as we said, I would always check that out. Um, and it's the Science Museum. Okay. And it's just next to the Grand Palais. And so everyone kind of goes in the Grand Palais. There's always a blockbuster exhibition on the Grand Palais. At the moment, it's Toulouse-Lautrec, which I'd really like to see, but I'm always put off by the sheer numbers of crowds. Next to it, you've got the Science Museum. And especially if you're traveling with kids, this is a lot of fun. And I don't have kids and I'm not a kid. And it's a lot of fun for me as well. Um, they have like interactive displays where people are talking about electricity or whatever it might be. They've, they had an exhibition on about um, Louis Pasteur um, for quite a long time. So it's, it's a good way of, of understanding a bit more about about French science, French approach to food. They often have food-based um, exhibitions on as well. So I'd say skip the crowds at the Grand Palais and go and have some fun in the, in the science museum. <laughs> there's, some, there's some good advice for you. Anything else that we should definitely do while we're in Paris? And there's one, so you said that it's sad about Notre Dame, and of course you are right. But there's the you know there's the Saint Chapelle as well and Saint Chapelle is some of the most amazing stained glass you will see and it's kind of a stone's throw from Notre Dame completely untouched by the fire and um, it's really worth a look I I'm not one of the flock either but um, Saint Chapelle stirs in some inside me something quite spiritual. A person asked me recently why do you go to so many churches and my answer is. I go where the art is. If there's art in a church, I go there. If there's art in a museum, I go there. If there's art on the, a mural on the side of a building in the middle of the city, that's where I'm going to go. So if you want to see art, you have to go where the art is. And a lot of cases, the art is in the churches. So yeah. this is a good recommendation for, for going to these churches. And there's one, another church actually in central Paris. It's called Saint-Eustache. 
Um, and it's got a Keith Herring in it, really bizarrely. Do you know Keith Herring? No, tell me more. So he was an American artist who, um, he died of AIDS in the early 90s, I believe. And he was very well known for graffiti and also... Okay, street artist. Very, yeah, Excellent. and they've got a, a, a triptych of his in this huge Catholic church in the center of Paris. That is amazing. And it's quite, it's, he was a very loud advocate for gay rights for, and it's just quite incredible that it's in there. So if, if you know who he is and you're a fan, I would definitely go and have a little look at that. Jess Timmons, it's been great to talk to you and I look forward to our next trip to Paris. Tell everyone how they can uh, find you and book a tour with Devour Tours on their next visit to Paris. So just log straight onto the Devour Tours website, um, click through, you'll get onto the Paris uh, options. We've also got a really amazing blog. So if you wanted to kind of get some ideas of what to do, of places to see, restaurants to eat in while you're here in Paris, check out our blog as well on the Devour Tours website. And, you know, Jess, before I let you go, something just popped into my mind. I was thinking, you know, about the Beatles and about you and then Paris. And I realized, you know, the Beatles had some very famous concerts in Paris. And I believe they played a place, I'll have to look this up, called the Palais de Sport in Paris, maybe, you know, sometime in the early mid-60s. I'd be interested to know if that building is still standing because I always like to go to uh, Beatles places when I visit <laughs> when I visit cities, not just Liverpool, yeah. not just London, but other places too. Because, for example, a year ago we were in uh, New Zealand and the Beatles did a very brief tour of New Zealand and we met people who were in their 60s now who were still talking about it, you know. 55 years later. So that might be an interesting spot if uh, the Palais de Sport is still standing. Do you know if it's still standing? Is that the Buckminster Fuller building? Oh, that's such a great question. I'll have to look it up because it just popped into my mind as I was talking to you about this. So I'll you look it up. You are a real fan. You're much more of a fan than me, you know, Brent. I wish you were from <laughs> Liverpool and not me. Well, <laughs> I actually did a radio show about the Beatles for about five years. Um, oh. So yeah, so I, I'm I'm quite I'm quite deep. I'm I'm very far into the deep end of all this. So Okay. <laughs> One thing that I will say when you come to Paris, I have a wine guy. He only stocks natural and organic and biodynamic wines. And he is also the biggest Beatles fan I've ever met. So you two I think need to meet each other. He's <laughs> he's on he's actually right by the Notre Dame. Um his shop is called L'Etiquette and he's a Frenchman. But he has met Paul McCartney. Oh, fantastic. He's had Paul McCartney's drummer in the shop and they've drank wine all night. And he's got a million stories to tell you about, about the Beatles. So you two definitely need to hook up. <laughs> oh, that'd be great because then I could share my story about that one time I met Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm, I'm going to not be present for this conversation. <laughs> I know. It would be a, a deep nerd dive between me and me and him. All right, Jess, thank you so much for spending the time. We look forward to seeing you in Paris, France. Can't wait. Thank you. Thanks, Brent. All right, there you go. I didn't mean for that conversation to delve so deeply into the Beatles, but it sure was fun talking to Jess, and I learned a whole lot about natural wines that I didn't know before. Thanks, Jess. 
After Jess and I spoke, I did look it up, and the Beatles did indeed play the Palais de Sports in Paris in 1965. That show is famous because it was filmed and has been widely bootlegged. I've included a link in YouTube where you can watch the Beatles' performance from that show at the Palais de Sports. Um, It's in the show notes. The Palais de Sports in Paris is now called the Dome de Paris. Beatle fans may also remember that in 1964, the Fabs played dozens of shows over 18 days at the Olympia Theater, which is also still standing. Music fans will be interested to know that Edith Piaf performed here frequently, and The Grateful Dead recorded their shows at the Olympia. You can hear some of the songs on their live set, Europe 72. And Jeff Buckley's Live at Olympia was recorded in 1995. Jeff considered it one of his finest performances. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Destination Eat Drink. Ed Silla of Radio Misfits distributes the show. Thanks, Ed. Join me next week as we head back south of the equator, where it's now summer, to South America's top foodie destination, Lima, Peru. I'm Brent Peterson, and I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.